Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. So we, this morning, are beginning a new series um, called, That's a Good Question. And um, man, we had submissions of lots of really good questions, James and I. I have maybe 50 questions, James. It was quite a bit, wasn't it? And so we, we're not gonna, it's not going to be a 50-week series. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be somewhere in the ballpark of eight or so weeks. But I mean, we're, we're actually pretty excited about it. Um, today is really the beginning, and we're starting in a really good place for the beginnings, kind of the most foundational question you could ask, and that is, what is the meaning of life? Now, you may not have ever thought those words in your head, but all of us ask that question. Every thinking person ever has asked that question. It might sound in your mind like, man, what is, how do I really find what I'm supposed to be doing in life? Like, what's my path? What am I supposed, what's life really about? What is super important? In life, it may sound different for you, but ultimately, we're all asking the question: What does life mean? What's the meaning of life? And I figured a great place to discover the meaning of life is the guy in King Solomon who says that there's not any. Okay, weird, right? But you'll see what I mean. Ecclesiastes. Let's just start in chapter one. Ecclesiastes chapter one, and we're going to read verses one through fourteen. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Preacher is Solomon's kind of title for himself here. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises. The sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, and nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Anybody feel encouraged? Uh, 
As I said, we're talking about what is the meaning of life today, and we're going to look at King Solomon to find our answer. This is the wealthiest and wisest man uh, to ever live. It's a, uh, he's the writer of the book of Proverbs, this great book of wisdom in your Bible. He's the writer of the book of Song of Songs in your Bible, this great book of poetry. Uh, he was a man who literally had and experienced and indulged in everything under the sun. Solomon lacked for nothing. Um, I, uh, I haven't seen, nor do I care to see, uh, the movie uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Um, but I, when I saw the commercials and, and read some reviews, I couldn't help but think of King Solomon. This guy who literally just dove headfirst into every indulgence he could possibly seek out. Um, yet, um, in the end, found that it only leads to death. Um, by the way, side note, this seems to be a recurring role, role for Leonardo DiCaprio. So truly, he might be a guy who's asking the same questions. It should break our hearts. Um, so Solomon was a guy who literally had everything, uh, but found that, as we read in the opening, vanity, vanity, everything is meaningless. Now, Solomon was actually raised in an environment to know God, was he not? Those of you who know the Bible. Who was Solomon's father? King David was Solomon's father, who certainly had his own problems, but came to a point in life where he repented. God called David a man after his own heart. David was a man who danced before the Lord. David was the greatest king in the nation of Israel. Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Solomon was raised in a situation where he should have known God, but he has now, and, and I, would, I would imagine he did, but he's now sort of moved on from those things. He has now begun to seek meaning elsewhere. Maybe that is like some of us, either here today or, or watching on YouTube. Maybe you were kind of raised in the things of God, and at one time maybe even you would have professed to be someone who knows God. But now, maybe as you've gotten a little older, experienced a few other things, you've begun to search for the meaning of life elsewhere. Uh, this, is, this is Solomon. You may be, in, or now, you might be an intellectual atheist where you, you have the belief that God's, I used to think God's there, but God's, God's really not there. Or maybe you're a practical atheist, that you, okay, maybe God's there, but the way that you live your life, practically speaking, is as if God is not there. And this is where we find Solomon at the beginning of the book. I believe that Solomon believes in God, but practically the way he's living his life. It's as though he may as well not believe in God. Um, he's writing this from a certain perspective. And that's the perspective that human beings get to determine our own path in life. That human beings... It's kind of our job, our purpose in life, to get out, set out on life, forge our own path, and find and determine our own meaning. This is where Solomon is, is writing from. So Solomon, again, is asking the questions, why am I here? What does life mean? What is the meaning of life? And his conclusion is, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. 
Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So quite clearly, what is the mood that Solomon is telling us of the human search for meaning? Despair. It's despair. You may be able to tell that. (laughs) This book was written some 3,000 years ago. But if you haven't noticed, human beings are still human beings. This is the human condition. This is very timely and relevant. This, this, uh, this phrase, vanity, that Solomon uses, he uses it to describe life or some part of life 38 times in just 10 chapters. And this Hebrew word that's translated vanity is referring to what is left after a bubble bursts. It's a, it's a wisp of vapor going off into nothingness. Solomon is saying that's what life is, and that's ultimately the meaning of life. Life is absurd. There is no meaning to life, says Solomon. Solomon is essentially crying from his heart, there's no meaning to my life. And um, he doesn't just say it's in vain. He says it's vanities of vanities. He's doubling down. He's like, this is the single most meaningless thing I could ever think of. There are some meaningless things, but life has got to take the cake says Solomon. This is as cynical and as pessimistic as somebody could ever be. Maybe, you, maybe that's where you are in life. You're like, really, is this it? Is, maybe you've been there. Um, is this it? Solomon's asking the same question. So I think we're in the right place. I think a lot of people would, be, would answer the question the way Solomon is answering the question. It's absurd. It's meaningless. I, um, it, depression and, and anxiety we're gonna, are so prevalent in our society. We're going to spend a whole section in this series of That's a Good Question talking about those things. But um, it's a pandemic. Uh, in 2011, NPR reported that one in 10 people are on antidepressants. One in 10. And those who are not clinically depressed are in many cases generally pessimistic and unhappy with the routines of daily life. If, if you dig into psychology research a little bit, you'll find that one of the most dreadful things in all of human existence today in our culture is boredom. Boredom is like the worst possible thing that we feel that can happen to us. And guess what? We think life itself is boredom. We think life is boring. So why do people think like this? Why do we sometimes think like this? It's because we've kind of bought into the idea that happiness, however you choose to define happiness, is the chief aim of life. That life is really about feeling good. So we pursue the diversion from what Sigmund Freud refers to as the everyday unhappiness of normal human experience. So we dive into to just what are really ultimately meaningless things like video games or hobbies or entertainment or physical pleasure in search of happiness. You know, if we could just collect all the best rewards or tokens or whatever they are on our particular video game of choice. If we could just win our fantasy league 
within the office. If I could just beat all my buddies at golf, then I'd be well thought of, right? If I could just have the most sales in my company, or if I could just stack up physical experiences or have those physical experiences be with more and more or different people, then maybe somehow I will feel fulfilled. You, you can list a, a long list of things to fill in the blanks. Um, but if we ever think we even think we catch those things, we realize that we can't hold them. They're always shifting. They're always moving and therefore cannot find answers there. In his book called, uh, which I highly recommend, called The God Question by a fellow named J.P. Moreland. Listen, you may want to write that down. The God Question by J.P. Moreland. It's out of print, but you can still find it online. He, he writes about this uh, phenomenon in several of his books called the empty self. Think about that phrase. There's not a slide for it, but think about that phrase, the empty self. And he's basically saying that um, we as a society suffer on a mass scale what Solomon suffers. Audience participation. When I say the phrase empty self, what do you think it means? Any suggestions? Empty self. Right on the nose. It means you're empty and you need to be filled. You have this insatiable desire to be filled with something. And even though you are being filled with those things, you are perpetually empty. Um, this is basically, we're, we're kind of groomed, we're perpetual infants. Those of you, anybody have small children? They're always empty. They need more. Everything they see is theirs, even if it's really not, right? They, they always, they're never satisfied, never satisfied. And J.P. Moreland is saying that we, in our schools and by our parents, are groomed from the time we're children. You know what? You do you. You go get yours. And that is basically the mindset of, of narcissism. <laughs> it's all about me, man. I'm going to do me. You do you, I'm going to do me. I'm going to get mine. Right? That, that's, we're kind of groomed that way. Um, and very few people would say that outright, that, you know, I'm the center of, of the world. <laughs> but think about how we live. Think about the choices that we, we make. It'd be fine if we were talking about infants, wouldn't it? Who need food and a clean diaper? And, but we're talking about people of all ages who are empty selves. Um, we actually embrace and encourage infantile behavior <laughs> among one another when we tell people things like, you do you, and just go get yours. We see this play out in real life. I know this is super exciting stuff to talk about, right? But we see this play out in real life. You ever see parents trying to live vicariously through their children or their children's friends? Ever, ever see that, this infantile behavior? You ever seen grown men with wives and families spending hours and hours and hours, like I said, playing video games or, or working on their hobby? Or here in Western North Carolina, the hunting widow is a phenomenon. Guys go hunting and trips for months, and their wives are like, man, I'm, I know it's Thanksgiving, but it's also the first day of deer season. You know? So we... we 
throw ourselves into things that we think are going to make us happy and we're making strangers of our friends and family. Um, they're, they're kind of orphaned to what we think will really bring us meaning. You've seen husbands and wives out with their buddies all the time pretending that they're single, trying to, trying to recreate those days and that feeling. I, when you thought, looking back, you think you were cool then, <laughs> right? Uh, there's, a lo- again, a long list of things like that. The, the reason, uh, there's lots of reasons that this kind of narcissism, this empty self is, is dangerous. Um, but think about this. Any uh, pushback or hindrance to your personal happiness, if you have that mindset, feels utterly devastating to you. Any inconvenience in life. So as a result, things that we should be able to easily overcome in life crush us. Here's the test. What does it take to set you into crisis mode? To make you feel a little panicked? Or get the blood pressure up just a little bit? What does it take? Yeah, sure, take your phone away. Yeah, right, Larry? Take, yeah, whatever it is. And is that really important? Think about, you know, it's, in some ways, it's a, the phone is a pacifier. I intend to talk about this. It's a great point. What do we do where we're in public and we don't want to talk to people? What do we do for at dinner with our, our friends and family and the conversation gets uncomfortable? Whew. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a pacifier. And when somebody takes our pacifier away, right? Listen, this is real, this is real talk, Larry, isn't it? We're telling the truth right here. Um, so that's a good test. It's because of this idea of this empty self. Um, I think that's the largest yet most unrecognized problem that we, that we face. And again... We are a nation of Solomons. Solomon uh, said he put his mind to all these things, and it was hopeless. It was meaningless. Um, it's not a modern problem. You know, one of the, one of the areas where we find this, this uh, infantile behavior is in the area of sexuality. You normally wouldn't uh, put that with sexuality, infantile behavior. Um, but think about this. Solomon had all the free love and un, un, in, see, uninhibited relationships that he ever wanted. You realize that Solomon had 700 wives? Solomon had 300 concubines? That's a thousand women. Not that he had to go out and try to win or anything like that. They're in his house. Yet Solomon, we, we see this in modern times with a guy like the, the, the late Hugh Hefner, who was a, the founder of Playboy. Hugh Hefner tells us that he was around all of those things, yet he came to a point in life where it wasn't even interesting to him anymore. Solomon, if you read Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew, says the same thing. It's just not even interested. It's not appetizing anymore. Yet, hear me, particularly dudes, listen up. Sexuality is the number one place we seek fulfillment and happiness. It 
That's why things like pornography are so rampant. Think about this. We're chasing after the wind. Do you realize? And if you've ever dealt with pornography, you know that you're never satisfied with it. It always has to be, it increases in frequency. And quite often increases in being twisted, getting more and more perverse. It is insatiable. We're trying to fill our empty selves with a sinful thirst. And hear me, no sinful thirst can ever be satisfied. So, in this search for meaning, you see it on the screen. We'll try anything and everything. We're trying to fill this empty self with things that never satisfy. And so we got to try this thing and that thing and this thing. And we throw enough stuff against the wall, maybe something will stick. And maybe we'll find purpose and meaning. This method of human search for meaning is that we'll try anything and everything. Solomon saw that none of the self-centered things ever satisfy. He tried everything. And he had everything that we think would bring us meaning and life. And here's where it led him. Flip over in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're just going to walk through Ecclesiastes 6. Look at verses in 1 and, 1 and 2 first. He says, There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. In other words, Solomon says you can have everything you want in life and still not have joy. And happiness and joy aren't the same thing. Okay? Um, think about it. Look at the, sort of the malformed, whacked out lives of the people that we honor in our society, celebrities. Think about their lives. They have the things that we think will make us happy. We, they have the things that we think will bring meaning to our lives, yet they are some of the most broken, at least publicly broken, people. Solomon calls it evil that material things or shine or position or any of those things. He, he says it's evil that those things can't produce happiness, but that's not evil. Those things were never meant to produce happiness. Right? He's, he's trying to climb this ladder to meaning, but he's put his ladder against the wrong wall. You know what I mean? He's, th those things were never supposed to provide meaning. Look at verses 3 through 6. He says, if a man, this is awful. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. Listen, this is terrible. He, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. See how, how disproportionate Solomon's worldview has become here. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun nor known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, rather than that man. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. Solomon says you can have a long life, man. 
You could live many years, but many years don't bring fulfillment. A long life is not the key to a good life. Verses 7 through 9, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon is saying financial security, feeding your belly, whatever it is, can, simply cannot be a trusted source of joy. They are fleeting at best. And you can't take any of it with you, can you? Verses 10 through 12, Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon is saying you can have all the great learning and understanding that you want, but it will not bring joy. We, in our, in our culture, we, we tend to think, man, if we, the more technology we can accumulate, the greater learning we can have, the more comforts we can have, and maybe we can, we can even, in a thing called transhumanism, we can place our consciousness in a machine and live forever and we don't need God. We think that knowledge will somehow save us. Solomon, the wisest man of all time, is saying that's vanity. It cannot bring meaning. And that's really the, the religion of atheism, and it, and it is a religion. A buddy of mine named Derek McCarson, who's a pastor over in Candler, wrote a book, a commentary on uh, Ecclesiastes called Journal of a Madman. Uh, and he says that when we seek knowledge and try to explain things without God, that we are arguing with God. You know, C.S. Lewis has pointed out that when we argue with God, we're arguing with that which makes arguing possible, right? But, but, but Derek, my buddy Derek says that our arms are just too short to box with God. Job tried it and concluded, I have uttered what I did not understand. Therefore, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. So Solomon's um, life, in his life, he wasn't content to, to find peace and meaning with God. He had to search for something else. Solomon sought joy within, which our culture would have encouraged him to do, right? Um, flip backward to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 with me. You guys seeing a pattern here? Okay. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 11. Solomon says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. 
I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil then. I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained. Under the sun. Just stop and think. What have you been pursuing to find meaning in life? What wall are you leaning your ladder of meaning against? Stop and think about that for just a minute. Solomon had everything that you could possibly think of, that you would name, and he says it's all meaningless. Um, we try to fill ourselves, and really we create ourselves out to be God. We replace God with us. Self-fulfillment ends up being self-worship. Do you realize that? And so that's why we're in the larger mess we are in. We have gotten rid of God. Without the larger context of a transcendent creator God, without the universal moral law, without the idea that all people are created equal in the image of God, without acknowledgement that in truth we cannot follow our hearts because our hearts are wicked. We are sinners in radical need of reconciliation to God. Without acknowledging that any of those things and all those things are only possible through God's gracious gift of His Son, then we lose any context for real clarity. We lose any context for real, lasting meaning in life whatsoever. We end up like Solomon. It's like Solomon is out on a ship and the ocean's going crazy, but he can't see the horizon. He has no idea where he is, so he's just making things up. He's grasping at straws because he has erased God. And Ravi Zacharias says, when you erase God from the scene, you, you wipe out the horizon. You can't make sense of up or down or what's right or what's wrong, and you seek anything in everything. Um, so, the cause of our despair, we've talked about it, is life without God. It's life without God. Um, people believe, maybe sometimes you feel, that life is meaningless and absurd and hopeless because you have lost sight of God. Again, you may not be a literal atheist, but you might be a practical atheist. You might live as though God is really not there. He's really not there. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon defines this view of life and the world as, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? And so what Solomon is saying is that there's no God above us. This is... Uh, the song Imagine, John Lennon, Imagine There's no, no Heaven Above. It doesn't lead to utopia, folks. It leads to Solomon. 
Solomon is saying, life under the sun, life without God, just, just down here on earth, my everyday, ordinary, mundane existence is meaningless. Um, there's no grounding, no lasting meaning without the God who is beyond the sun and the God who created the sun, in fact. Um, this connection between life without God and despair is the point of what Solomon is making. And he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is life under the sun, life without God. This is where it leads. Because hope, meaning, depends on the God of hope, the providence God of hope. So I want, um, I want you to hear me really well. If you are living life under the sun, either because you don't believe God's there or because you do believe God's there, but you're practically living like He's not, you're never, ever going to be in a place where you're not thirsty for more. You're never going to be filled. I'm telling you that because I love you. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're living life with God in mind, you're not trying to find your own way. You've maybe tried that in the past, but you realize, man, that's a busted bubble. I was glad to have my bubble burst, right? But now we don't live for ourselves. We live for and with the Creator God who is above heaven, who is above the sun, who has created the sun. Solomon would have done really well to listen to his father, David. Go with me. Well, you don't have to go with me, but it'll, it'll be coming up. Psalm 17. David, by the way, had lots of prestige, lots of wealth. Lots of land. Psalm 17 says this. Check this out, 14 to 15. He says, From men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. Again, you cannot take it with you. As for me, listen to David, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David has learned that only life with God truly satisfies. And life is really about being conformed to the image of your Creator. And that is real. And that is satisfying, is what David is saying. Solomon, and maybe us, would have done well uh, to listen to that. Um, I read some writing on Ecclesiastes, and they were talking about this new and, and better and different and fulfilling and meaningful life we can have in Jesus. This person says this, The person who lives in Christ now travels earth by, uh, earth's roads by heaven's map. He weighs earth's treasure on heaven's scale. He bears earth's burdens in heaven's strength. He views earth's tragedies in terms of heaven's triumph. He fights earth's battles with heaven's weapons and values earth's trophies by heaven's standards. He thinks in terms of both life now and life hereafter regarding suffering, priorities, and even death. He says with Asaph in Psalm 73, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire besides thee. He says, this person lives by faith, persuaded that God is 
and that God is active in the lives of those who diligently seek Him. Because His life is based on this otherworldly perspective, it also assumes a richness of meaning and sense of purpose now, right now. Theologian uh, Harry Blamir says that to think secularly, that is to think of life without God, is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth under the sun. It is to keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. To think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related, directly or indirectly, to man's eternal destiny in Christ Jesus as the redeemed and chosen child of God. I'm telling you guys, that's where meaning is. So Ecclesiastes is written to convince us that any view of life and of the world is meaningless unless God is at the center of it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you know that, but you've lost sight of that. There's grace for you. Run to the giver of grace. Run to the Savior. He will remind you of what life means. He will remind you that there is joy to be had. Not necessarily always happiness, but there is joy to be had. The Lord will remind you. And once we find meaning in Him, check this out. All those other things that otherwise are mundane and meaningless all of a sudden have purpose now. All of a sudden have meaning now. Now when I'm doing my hobby, now I used to play basketball before my brain injury, uh, and I didn't always uh, look very Christ-like on the court, okay? <laughs> you, you know, I like to jaw a little bit. But if I keep the eternal perspective in mind, if I keep in mind that life is not just about being under the sun, life is about being under the S-O-N, sun, now my hobby is like, oh, I can't lose my temper out here. I might want to tell that person about Jesus. I... I'm trying to represent my father. I don't want to bring shame to my family. Right? Even, even shooting free throws then has meaning. Because when I miss, how do I respond? <laughs> even these little mundane, seemingly meaningless things all of a sudden have great purpose. Your job, if you're a janitor, praise God. It's a picture of the gospel. Jesus clean you up. Did Jesus clean you up? Then praise God, you get to demonstrate doing that with joy just like He did. Everything has meaning under the Father. Everything. Man, that's, that's a message of hope, you guys. I don't know if you get it quite yet. That's a message of hope. Life is real. Life is joyous. Life has meaning in the right perspective and used for the right things for the glory of God. So St. Augustine uh, rightly tells us that God has made us for Himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. So futility, vanity, gives way to purpose. Chasing the wind is replaced by pursuing Christ and despair gives way to joy. Praise God for that. So what's the true meaning of life? Let's boil it all down. The true meaning of life, it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Did you hear the word I said? You, you can enjoy God Himself. Is there a greater thing for you to enjoy? You can, do you know what you're missing out on? You can enjoy God. 
It's incredible. Imagine what we're missing out on. Listen, if you don't know the joy of enjoying God, man, please talk to somebody. Get me, get James. We want to share the truth with you, and it is amazing. There is great joy to be found in Jesus. Maybe, maybe you have life in Christ, and again, you saw, um, you've began to seek meaning elsewhere. Man, Jesus loves U-turns. He'll turn you right around. He will. That's what repentance is. Man, there's grace for you. There's grace for you. Um, as a church, we seek to remember what grace looks like. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus come to pay, came to pay our debt. And every week, we remember with juice and bread representing his blood and his body. And we say, thank you, Jesus. I once was lost. Life was meaningless as far as I knew. But now I'm found. And it cost you your life, Jesus. You know what my response should be? Our response should be, I give you my life, Jesus. You gave me your righteousness. You gave me your perfect life. Will you take this mess of mine? Will you redeem it? Will you give me joy? And his answer is yes. Yes, he will. That's the meaning of life.